All right. Did you guys all meet the new, is his name Brett? No. Okay. Um, Haven't met him for yet. the first time in person on uh, Monday. Break him in. Break him in. You know, really let him know. Let him know. Who's in know, charge? How things work here. Yeah. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the city's top official at the health department will be in charge of addressing gun violence, describing the problem as an epidemic. And Venture Global, a Virginia-based liquefied natural gas company, has asked for a variance on its construction operations as delays due to severe weather have resulted in slower overall construction progress on the plant that sits five feet below sea level in Plaquemines Parish. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hi, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hey, Josh. Hey. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Nick, first up with you, New Orleans Health Director Dr. Jennifer Avegno went before City Council last month to present a vision for a new public health-driven approach to gun violence. She described the killings in the city, which have reached the highest levels in years, as an epidemic at this point. Tell us what happened to the Office of Gun Violence Prevention that Mayor Cantrell rolled out just a bit ago. We talked about this um, a couple of podcasts ago, but give us an update of what's happened now. Yeah, so nothing since we talked last. Mm. Um, so the Office of Gun Violence Prevention was an office that that was created in 2021, so just a couple of years ago, and was pitched as Cantrell's generational approach to gun violence, this public health approach that was meant to reduce the number of, of um, gun deaths over the next 50 years. So it's kind of this big, ambitious plan to incorporate a public health approach to gun violence into the city government um, and to have it last over several administrations. Um, But at the beginning of this year, the office shut down most operations. And the given reason for that was a lapsed uh, agreement between the office and its outside fiscal agent that was sort of receiving money from the city to run some of its programming. So anyway, when we talked last, the city had told me that the office would be back up and running in a matter of weeks, that they just needed to sort of fix this uh, this sort of technical issue with their fiscal agent and, and find a new fiscal agent, actually, and then they'd be back up and running. But we've heard nothing since then. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's clear that they have not signed a new agreement. And in the meantime, as you said, now the health department is talking about creating a new strategy to, to tackle gun violence. Okay, so moreover, Nick, uh, remind us that the the Office of Gun Violence Prevention had a budget of like $2 million or something, which doesn't yeah, seem it was, like it, it was, was enough. Well, there are several, the office, like you said, had a, had a very small budget and it was a mix of city funding and foundation funding and grant money. And I think most people would say, no, it wasn't enough. I think actually, you know, I think both the office itself would say that they were under-resourced and some of the main critics of the office would say that, you know, while they were hesitant to give more money to this particular office, the the general idea of funding more programs to address gun violence outside of the criminal legal system is a good idea. So that's kind of what we're seeing with this new effort um, from the health department, which was really 
uh, initiated by the city council. Many of the members have been have been outspoken about um, their concerns about the Office of Gun Violence Prevention and, and its lack of effectiveness. Um, so they went ahead and instructed the health department to come up with a more robust uh, gun violence intervention program. And so, like you said, the, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention has been working with around $2 million. They're envisioning a new program that would be in the like 25 to $50 million range. Okay. So um, something must, much more robust and something that we've kind of, is taking place in other cities, but hasn't really happened here. Is she able to, to describe and envision a program without the money so far? How does it work? How does she even get the resources she needs to develop the program and then get the funding? So what, what Dr. Jennifer Avegno, the, the city's health director, told me was that she had a few programs in mind that she thought would ha have already shown evidence of reducing gun violence in cities, one of them being a violence interrupter program, which existed under Miramich Landrew and then sort of evolved into something a little bit different um, under this new administration. And she kind of wants to, to revive the old model. And so what she said, she's going to identify a few of these programs, ask for initial funding, um, and this would be Federal uh, uh, American Rescue Plan Act funding. Um, go to the city council, ask them for those kind of initial appropriations, and then kind of scale up from there um, as kind of they gather more evidence about what's working and what's not. Will you explain the differences or the, I guess maybe it's a nuance or not, it could be a little bit more overt between what Mitch Landrew's office had and what had evolved, what you're, what you're saying that she'd like to kind of move back to, how does that differ from what the Office of Gun Violence Prevention had put in place or had tried sure, to? Sure, I'm actually, I'm doing some reporting on this right now, but I can kind of get into, I can kind of describe generally, um, Previously, there was a program called Ceasefire, where violence interrupters who were who were so-called credible messengers, and these are people who, you know, sometimes had been incarcerated in the past or had been involved in, um, you know, had had been involved in violence and had been either victims or perpetrators of violence in the past, would go into neighborhoods and try and identify conflicts before they they got started, um, and really kind of be involved in the community. And this initially started in, in one very small uh, neighborhood in, in Central City um, under Mitch Landrew. And, and since Cantrell came in, they've kind of moved away from that model. And they've still had people going to scenes of shootings to interact with victims and to offer services. Um, but it's been less reliant on the actual credible messenger system where people are in the community trying to identify conflicts um, before they arise and, right. and intervening. Um, so that's kind of the general shift that, that has occurred. You know, the, the director of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention told me in an interview last year, actually, that, that they were moving away from this model and instead were, they have a barbers and beauticians program where they were trying to train people in the community in um, de-escalation uh, techniques and, and some intervention techniques, but not actually have um, violence interrupters who are employed by the city who are actually out in the communities, you know, actively 
trying searching out these conflicts and, and trying to intervene. Okay. She was the face of the COVID response for obvious reasons. Now she's taken on this role. Is this more common, do you think, in a city like New Orleans or around the around the country for the health department to be in charge of this type of initiative? You know, I'm not sure exactly how it works in other cities. It's certainly common or becoming more common for the city to act for a city to actively treat gun violence as a public health issue. Mm -hmm. That's something that's becoming quite common. These violence interrupter programs are becoming more common. Other um, sort of economic programs, job training programs that are specifically trying to identify people who are most likely to either be victims or perpetrators of gun violence and providing them with opportunities um, are yeah, taking hold in a lot of cities, whether or not they're being run directly by the health departments in those cities or not, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, but what's really remarkable about this new effort is it's not new at all. Um, you know, the presentation that Dr. Avegno made before the city council basically described exactly what the Office of Gun Violence Prevention said it mm. was going to be doing. Um, and, you know, I think it's, a, it's an interesting thing to have one city department recreating the work of another city department without really acknowledging that that's that's exactly what they're doing um and there's politics involved in that for sure and you know i think i think probably dr avegno is in a, in a bit of an awkward position because you know she she is also within the city government and and is now kind of recreating this program that was supposed to be this big robust program created that was just created two years ago um and so we'll see. I mean, I think from the council's perspective, they have way more faith in Dr. Avegno and in the health department than they do in the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Um, and they really don't believe that the Office of Gun Violence Pre Prevention has been effective or can be effective under its its current leadership. I mean, and obviously right now it's it's more or less, uh, you know, not doing anything. So We'll see how this plays out and what the relationship ends up being between the health department and the Office of Gun Violence Prevention um, and whether or not, you know, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention sort of continues on or whether or not the, the city decides, you know, we can just kind of fold this and we'll go with this new program mm. uh, that they're starting up. Okay. Did Mayor Cantrell or her administration respond at all to this new TAC? No, they haven't. They have not given any... Uh, it, they have not provided any information to me about this new program or about the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Although, you know, Dr. Avegno is technically, like I said, under the city government and and did sit down with me and, and chat about the new program. So, like I said, I, I, it, there does seem to be some some tensions there. Okay. And finally, Nick, what happens next? Does she, she will provide a, a more filled out program and ask for funding somehow. And well, I asked, I also have one more question about the public private part of this. How did she explain how that would work? No. So, I mean, it, it sounds like she is hoping to attract private money as well, and also sort of outsource some of the work to private nonprofits who might, you know, have various intervention programs of their own and, and provide more robust funding, city funding for them. Okay. Um, I think there, there, I don't think there's a clear plan yet. Um, I think that's what she's working to develop. And in terms of what's next, I 
she at some point will need to provide something to the city council. I imagine she'll do a presentation and, and kind of lay out what she's found and also then go ask for money or the city will, will ask for money for an allocation for these certain programs. Hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Joshua, there is a plant under construction now. Um, Venture Global is the name of the company. They're a Virginia-based liquefied natural gas company. At the bottom, you, 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 it's referred to as the the land's end or the the end of the earth. Um, near, near the end of the world. The end of the, uh, the end of the world. Um, right. Which calls to mind an entirely different landscape, um, Venice. But tell us what they asked for. They asked for a delay. What's happening? What are they trying to build? And um, talk about the ironies here. Sure. So it's a really massive um lng facility you know that is it's it's right next to uh first of all it's it's right next to the main uh roadway which acts as as the artery uh to to this for for this whole parish essentially um plaquemines parish Uh, it it turns into a peninsula this very kind of narrow strip of land it hugs the mississippi river there's this huge plant right virtually right on top of that road, uh, Louisiana Highway 23, which is right next to the Mississippi River. And it's it's not far at all from where the Gulf of Mexico starts. Um, you know, it's this uh, gigantic facility, $13.2 billion uh, in funding initially for it. It, it was originally, the company was saying, uh, set to be fully operational by the middle of 2025 LNG at the moment uh, and 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 really since the war in in uh, Ukraine started with with Russia having invaded uh, Ukraine um it's 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 been um you know at kind of a, a hot topic if you will I, I, I suppose in terms of companies essentially trying to cash in on this uh disruption to the market and um at least saying that they're going to prioritize, you know, supplying this uh, energy to, to 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 Europe to act as a, a counterbalance to to Russia's position now in 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 the global market. Um, although the, the the actual contracts that are in place would would kind of um, you know suggest that uh, that may not actually end up being the case. A, a lot of this energy is actually going to Asia, for instance, um, in, in, in actuality, if, if these contracts are actually uh, honored and executed. Anyway, um, the, this company has apparently uh, hit 
a roadblock in their construction uh, this uh, past year, 2022, with some quote unquote severe weather and and they are behind schedule as as they communicated to uh, to FERC, the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission. And so to kind of make up the difference, uh, they're asking for a lot more workers there for a specific period of time and also to go uh, onto a 24-7 work schedule for about six months. Um, and, and so I guess kind of, I, I think that there, are, there are a couple ironies here. One is that this uh, facility is going, if, if it becomes operational, and they end up shipping it, this LNG, out into the world. Uh, and, and even the production process itself, um, you know, is, is going to contribute to climate change. You know, it's going to accelerate that process. Meanwhile, it's, it's as you said in the intro, it's, it's below sea level. It's, it's in a, a place, you know, a, a place where... The, the wetlands are disappearing. Louisiana's lost a tremendous amount of wetlands um, over the last half uh, of, of the previous century and, and, and beyond, you know, that have acted as a buffer to uh, prevent some of the, the worst uh, damage of these uh, storm systems that come through. And, you know, uh, the, the storm surges and the sea level rises that uh, scientists are predicting could very well mean that you know this this plant is 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 going is going to suffer some kind of let's say you know catastrophic event that right. might spell spell its demise and not to mention the people who who live there and and, and might be affected by that right. and, and so that's kind of the the thrust of this lawsuit that i'm sure we'll, we'll discuss uh here as well but yeah that's kind of the you know a thirty thousand foot view if you will can you can you tell me something I found interesting what what your story said that um this all comes on the heels of of 2022 which was quiet and no yes. no named storms it was a right. kind of a miraculous year especially compared to recent years where there've been a lot of storms really disruptive and um devastating storms Ida the most recent one what giant severe weather delays did they suffer in 2022 that they that they don't think are going to be even worse coming going forward i mean they've rolled the dice there that's not the right term they have made the decision they're all in on this plant um mm -hmm. but just talk about that situation that we find ourselves in where they're asking for extra time now because of severe weather and it was a quiet year yes it, you're that Absolutely right in, in how you characterize that. And I asked them that question directly and they didn't respond. So if if there if this was like, you know, a kind of remarkably quiet year and they they still face these these delays, which they they have to do all this work on the back end to make up for, I mean, I don't know what they're expecting, frankly, you know, this coming uh, hurricane season or the next hurricane season or the next hurricane season. And, and, and that's just through construction. Um, you know, and, and then when, when, when you look at it, the plant, when it's finally built, it's not, it's not as if the storms, 
you know, are, are, are going to disappear then either. And the, you know, the, the arguments made by these environmental groups is that when the uh, Louisiana De uh, Department of Natural Resources approved or granted this uh, exemption for this coastal use permit for this facility, uh, they did so in 2019. That was before Hurricane Ida. That was before the IPCC and NOAA um, published these uh, reports predicting, you know, pretty significant sea level rise. Um, and and if, if if you look at those kinds of storms, according to these groups and and the scientists that, that they've employed, um, the 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 levee system that uh, Plaquemines Parish has. And this like flood wall ring levy um, that the company itself is building, you know, around these um, these huge uh, tanks that, you know, as, as I understand it, compress and, and uh, liquefy the natural gas. Those, depending on depending on the the severity of the storm and um, how you know the sea level rise. I mean, those those are in, in their words. It's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. Um, the storm surge would overtop those, and, and that is not a good thing for the people who live there who might have to evacuate during one of those storms. Um, it's not good for the the facility itself in terms of compressing and, and cooling and shipping uh, this natural gas. So yeah, it's it's like the uh, the the vision of this plant, you, you know, as expressed on paper. Um, and 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 uh, you know, as funded by different um, interested parties, versus the reality of of where this plant is and, and what is going on with the climate and the world. You know, it's like these two things. The there's going to be some kind of you know confrontation, I guess, uh, if you will, between this this like idealized version of, of of what this plant is going to be able to do and the reality of of the world in which we're currently living right what litigation's happening around this so there there are three uh environmental groups the uh sierra club um uh, healthy gulf and the deep uh deep south um center for environmental justice have um sued uh, LDNR, the Louisiana Department of Natural Resources, saying that you know they the LDNR erred in um, granting this exemption uh, for this coastal use permit to uh, Venture Global, and, and among other things, they want LDNR to go back and um, you know reevaluate, and and it's their position that they need to decide to issue. A coastal use permit, or you know, the project um, shouldn't be able to proceed. And LDNR has said, you know, we did our due diligence. Um, you know, hurricanes and storm surges are are not new to us, and and uh, you know, they're it's this is not new information for us to analyze. And we're confident that the levy system and and the different protections in place are are essentially sufficient. Do those lawsuits have any impact on whether or not they'll get this special use, um, this extension or, or variant, variance, I guess is the right word, for the construction yeah. that they're seeking? Good question. So, 
so 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 those are on two different tracks um the the lawsuit is playing out uh in a state court in in baton rouge and um this variance request is was was um the the company applied to FERC for that so okay uh FERC is you know is is, is going to have um the the say there with that how long does that take the to approve the yep. uh, the variance request yep it's a good question. I I I think it depends. Um, yeah, I I don't know exactly. I'll, there, I'll be interested to take a look at the docket. Is there any reason to believe they won't get it? I would personally. I mean, I'm not. I'm not the the world's authority on how FERC operates. Um, but I would personally be surprised if it, they didn't get um, approved for this variance request. Right. Construction is going on as we speak. Um, there's a lot of money behind this project, you know, and and so from that perspective, it's like you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. If if they were like asking to fundamentally change the the nature of the project, that might be a different story. But this is them asking, can we have some more workers? Can can they go on this more intensive schedule? Which maybe from from that perspective isn't isn't such a big deal, but you know, as as one of the um, staff scientists with Healthy Gulf was saying, uh, Naomi Yoder, in the story, you know, if one of these huge storms hits during the six month window where there are, there are all these um, additional workers down there with their families on the roads, um, you know, how does that how does that uh, implicate the evacuation strategy for all the people living, you know, south and and southeast of this project because there's there's really only there's just that main road and this plant as the the lead photo in the story I took that from an airplane that uh, you know um, I was fortunate enough to to, to be on flying over uh, this this uh, construction site it is right on top of the that road so from the the people living there and you know it, it it might be a different perspective if something of that you know um that kind of urgency happens yeah gosh that has to be an incredibly unique situation too right like that's not going to be a consideration for FERC because that's not something they deal with regulating I'm I'm hard-pressed right now to even think of like what state agency would potentially be yeah, review something like the, that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I, I saw in in uh, a filing um, that the company had consulted with uh, the Department of Transportation. I think it was in the its variance request actually, and they were talking kind of in 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 broad strokes about the impact of these additional workers, um, you know, on on traffic and apparently there, there there's going to be um different law enforcement officers who who are going to be um assigned to kind of help manage uh the traffic uh flow in in the area there there are some there already i believe uh, but there 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 might be additional ones you know as part of this undertaking but they don't address this question specifically that naomi brought brought up which is what happens if the worst case scenario unfolds and there is one of these really catastrophic events that means that people have to try and evacuate and and these storms can just 
you know, speed up on communities. I mean, what what, what was Ida? Uh, yeah. 48 hours from the moment yeah. it spawned until it made landfall, right? Yeah. Something like that. Unprecedented you know, doesn't you, mean anything anymore. Well, it's a great story. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right, you guys. It's nice to see you all. Talk to you later then. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>